recovering well from the holidays, and uh, we're looking toward uh, 2014. Hard to believe that we're saying 2014. Remember, remember Y2K? Doesn't that just seem like, I mean, it's like, what a joke that was. You know, everybody was, had their you know, generators, their kerosene heaters, and you know, every, everybody was ready. And, and uh, it came and went, and not much happened. But uh, 2014 coming up, and I, I, I hope and pray that it's a wonderful year um, for you and your family, and that God just really reveals his heart to you in a new way. And, and uh, I pray and trust that you had a, a great Christmas as well. Um, today we're going to continue in the story. Um, I, I, I've been loving studying and reading and, uh, and, and just seeing uh, the, the, the life of Scripture being revealed to our hearts. I love that uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews says that, that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, uh, and, and if you've been tracking along, you see that to be true as we read and study the Bible. We look at this sweeping tour of the entire Bible, looking at major themes, seeing the great story of God, the story that he has been telling from the very beginning, and inviting us, amazingly, into his story, his story of love, rescue, redemption. And uh, the people that we look at, you, know, you see themes and you see people throughout Scripture. The people that we see reveal things about who God is and about who we are. We see average, ordinary, broken people like us. A lot of times we see them, and they're somewhat heroic, and we can somewhat say, you know, thank God for the courage of that person or the strength of the faith of that person. But if you look deep, you see flaws, you see brokenness, you see people that are dealing with some things, and uh, and, and, and we, we, we will see some people follow God. We see others running away from him. But uh, ultimately, you see the importance as we look at people, the importance of walking with Jesus every day, understanding that from the very beginning, he created us for a relationship. We have to remember that. We must never forget why we were created, that we were created to have relationship with God and to bring him glory. That's why we are here and here's the cool thing is he didn't need us. God did not create man because he was lonely and needed companionship. He was sufficient all by himself. He needed nothing and no one, yet he created us because he loves us. And so we were created to have a relationship with him. And, and, uh, and, and when we forget that, that, that leads us on the slippery slope of destruction. The last two sermons that I talked about, kind of just to catch you up a little bit, I'm not going back to the very beginning, but you know, you had... Um, you had the time of judges before kings. We, we talked about Ruth, the kinsman, redeemer, how we saw Christ come alive in that story. Then you see uh, the book of 1 Samuel come alive, and we're going to move into the time of the kings of Israel. Remember, the Israelites wanted a king like all the other nations. This grieved God but, uh, and grieved Samuel the prophet, but God said, we will give them a king. So they got Saul. So we, we looked in kind of in detail at the first two kings, Saul and David. You saw the wrong response, you know, that Saul was about himself. He was filled with pride, self-preservation. He built his own name instead of building God's name. He was making monuments to himself. And you see David, who was so, so desired to bring glory and honor to God. He was in humility. He lived a life of humility. He wanted to lift the name of God. And even when he blew it, and we looked at that story that is so heartbreaking for David, he just messed up royally. We see that he also had a heart to repent and that, he, that, that, that this touched God's heart. God called him a man after his own heart. And I, be, I believe because it was his right response, a, a, a relational response to God. When he blew it, he wanted to get things right with God. And so you see this right response. Today we're going to look at the third king of Israel. 
And this, if you're tracking along in the story, this is chapter 13 in, in the story. And, uh, and we're going to look at this man's life. This is David's son, Solomon. And Solomon's life is a study of the importance of not just beginning well, but finishing well. His story is heartbreaking. His story is almost Shakespearean in nature. It's a tragedy that has a very good beginning. But you're going to see that he does not finish well. And what we will hear from his story, what we will see in his story, is how to run the race with God faithful, the importance of running the race with him faithfully, and then ultimately finishing well. God wants us to finish well. Solomon serves to remind us of some very important things as we walk with God in our relationship with God, walking in honor, which you will see at the beginning he did, and then he walked away from that. Walking in reverence to the Lord, walking in a healthy fear of the Lord. When you hear that fear of the Lord, we're not talking about terror, we're talking about a healthy reverence and honor and fear of the Lord. Living for God instead of living for the things of this world. Now, as we look into his life, we're going to dive into his life. That doesn't mean that we're not to enjoy some things that the Lord has given us on this earth. We're given things. We're given gifts from the hand of God to enjoy for his glory. We enjoy them, but we are, not to, we, we, we are to enjoy them and use them in, in the way that he has told us to use them and not that they become an end to themselves. But we will see in Solomon's life, something that took his love and affection from God. And then ultimately, how we need to run the race of life with perseverance. Because life is going to be hard. There are going to be difficult times. We're going to have struggles ahead. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will finish well. And so Solomon's story is very tragic and it's hard to read. Um, this is a guy who, he's got David, his father is David, you know, and, and, and although David made some mistakes, David was a man of God, David loved God, David was about worshiping God, Solomon saw this growing up, and in and, and, and some ways Solomon had these encounters with God. If you read the text very closely, Solomon has two very clear encounters with God. God speaks to him, and so, I mean, he's had the ultimate altar call. He has responded to God. He's come down. He's wept. He's hit his knees. And he's basically saying, God, you have all my life. I'm all yours and I'm all in. And that's the way he begins. It's not like he begins kind of like, well, I'm kind of interested in God. No, he goes all in up front. He desires to follow God. His dad, David, gives him a sobering and encouraging farewell speech before his death. I mean, it's kind of like, all right, son, let me talk to you because I'm going to be dying soon and I want to give you some things. And so he tells him the importance of following God, not turning away, staying with God. I mean, David's got this story in his life about Bathsheba. I mean, he's, you know, her, her husband, Uriah, having him killed. I mean, he's got some things that he can instill in his son saying, if you'll listen to me, if you'll heed to the wisdom, if you will follow God, things will go well. And so Solomon begins by doing that, but he doesn't stay on the path. If you look more in depth in his life, Ecclesiastes, and we're going to touch in a little bit of Ecclesiastes in a little, bit, in, in a little later, but Ecclesiastes is somewhat of his life journal. I mean, you'll see in there what not to do. You'll see him 
as he has veered away from God, him not withholding anything from himself. But as we look at Solomon's life today, my heart for you, my heart for myself, is that we will ask God, God, what are you speaking to me through this story? Because again, God gives us these people. He gives us these lives. He gives us these these stories as he unfolds them to say, what is he speaking to me? What is he saying to me? Not just looking at Solomon from a distance and saying, oh, that's neat. It's God is trying to speak something to our hearts as well. Maybe areas where we may be compromising. Maybe areas where we're doing our own thing. Because that is ultimately what Solomon did. It's little compromises that led to his downfall. So we're going to start at the beginning of his reign. We're going to be in 1 Kings 3. 3 through 15. This is a great beginning. This is, uh, this is, such a, this is a great beginning to a life uh, with God. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David. So he's had the speech. Dad has said, I'm giving you some instructions you need to follow. And so he's showing his love for the Lord by doing this. Except that he offered sacrifices and he burned incense on the high places. So there's a little compromise there. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon, I'm tracking along here, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. If you're wondering, that's a lot. He he basically wrote out a huge check to the church. I mean, this is a gigantic, very expensive offering. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous, upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and and given him a son to sit on his, his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made me servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, two numbers to counter numbers. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you wise and a discerning heart, so that there will never have been, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Verse 13. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to keep to me and keep my decrees and commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. This is a great beginning, isn't it? I mean, his heart is to please the Lord. He loves God. He's saying, I I love God so much that I'm I'm doing this. And then he has this exchange with the Lord. God is pleased with him. And it says this, God is pleased with him. And tells him, ask for anything that you want and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine having that from God? Ask for whatever you want. 
And so uh, Solomon could ask for anything, but he asks for wisdom. He says, I'm like a child. I don't know how to lead these people, God. I need your wisdom. And this request even impresses and honors and touches the heart of God. That he doesn't just ask for stuff. He doesn't ask for power. He asks for wisdom. And so God is honored and blessed by Solomon's request that he even also gives to him materially, and he gives him power and influence. And as you see in Scripture, Solomon's wisdom is renowned. He was the wisest man in the world. And so this exchange, this beautiful thing between he and God. God sees his heart. God says, whatever you want, give me wisdom. And so things are going awesome for Solomon during this time. During this time, Israel walks in a rare time of peace and prosperity. There's not war going on like there had been in David's time. You have this awesome king who loves God. He wants to please God. He wants to honor God. And his power and his influence are felt all over the place. World leaders would come just to be around him, to hear him. Israel was respected in fear And because of that, there was no war. And so, even from the promise of David, Solomon was tasked to build the temple for the Lord. And so he builds the temple of God, which is greater and beyond anything that had ever been seen. It was was, was an amazing architectural wonder. Gold, rare fabrics, gold-covered pearl stuff. I mean, it was just beautiful. Solomon dedicates the temple. You know, he gets it all done. He gets all of this beautiful stuff. He dedicates it in this amazing ceremony. God shows up. God's presence is at the ceremony. You know, he's basically saying, God, this is yours. I give it to you. I give you my life. I give you this kingdom. I give you my people. God shows up, and the presence of God is felt. It was a great day for Solomon and Israel. I mean, it says that that God's presence was so thick. It says the ministers in the temple couldn't even minister because of the presence of God that was there. And you'd think, man, this this is the very picture of revival. I mean, Solomon has the right heart before the Lord. He has had these encounters with God. He comes to the temple. God's presence is there. You would think that he would never run away from God. He, has, he even has deep wisdom, which we read and we glean in the book of Proverbs. He wrote the vast majority of Proverbs, those daily nuggets of great wisdom. And so he's this man of wisdom. He sees the importance of walking with God. He writes the book of, the, of Song of Solomon, how to do relationships in a godly way. And so, really, if you just step back, things could not be any better for his life and for his kingdom at this point. And if you're like me, if you read and you're tracking along, you wish the story would end right there, don't you? And Solomon lived well and happily ever after, followed the Lord all the days of his life. And then he died, and then the next king rose. You wish it would end that way, but it doesn't. It's not what happens. See, there's an interesting verse in the text that I read earlier. Verse 14, God says to Solomon, and if you walk in obedience to me and my decrees and my commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Did you catch that? If you will do this, then I will do this. God's promises are conditional. 
We need to understand. His love is unconditional. He loves us no matter what. But his promises are conditional. And he says, if you will do life how I have set life up, then you will get the blessings that come along with that. And that's why God is not this cosmic killjoy, but he says, I've given you life. I'm your father. I love you. And there's a way to do life and that all the aspects of your life And there's a way to do them and there's a way not to do them. If you want to be blessed, if you want to walk in the blessings, do it the way I have set it up. If you don't want to be blessed, then do it your own way. His love is unconditional, but his promises are conditional. We have to do it his way. He's the Lord, we're not. And we got to understand the reason that he sets it up this way is he wants what is best for us. When we... When we lose sight of that, we're in trouble. When we lose sight that God wants best for me. Because a lot of times we like to do things our own way, and God starts, because he loves us, and he's a loving father, and he says, you know, and he puts a check on that, or he puts a block on that, and he says, you know, that you're doing your own thing there. We get a little disappointed, and we start pushing away from him. But if we gain back the sight of he is doing this for my good because he loves me and he wants my absolute best and we don't see him as a dictator but we see him as a father who loves. And so what happens with Solomon? What led to his downfall? We're going to look at that, that text next. We're going to just kind of look at the bookends and then we're going to take a little bit more in-depth look but we're going to look at how this ends so things are going well. I just told you everything. that He begins his reign well, loves God, dedicating a lot to the Lord. He's dedicating his life, giving God sacrifices. He builds the temple. He's got wisdom. The Lord shows up. The presence of God is in a very real way. And then we see his downfall, 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. And here's the key. It's not so much just intermarrying. It's because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon, evil in the eyes of the Lord, he did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
We'll talk about that next week. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will, do not, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of your hand, the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but he will have one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Isn't that a heartbreaking end? On the surface, it can seem that he had just a woman problem, but it wasn't just that. Ultimately, it was a worship problem. We are all, every human being on planet earth is created to worship. We are created to worship. That's why when you, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the great theological questions, and I'm not going to even talk about that today, but one of the great theological questions is, what about these people that live in remote areas that have never heard about Jesus? What happens to them when they die? Have you ever heard that or talked about that or had that question? I have. It's interesting is when they find some of these tribes, isn't it interesting that a part of their culture, they find them doing some sort of worship, don't they? They don't just find them just, you know, maintaining life. They, 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 there is some sort of worshipful service that they do with flames and they're dancing and they're calling out to something. We're, we're created to worship. If you don't believe me, go to a football game. Or any other sport for that matter. Where you have people painting themselves and at Lambeau Field taking their shirts off. That, I mean, that, you know, that's, that's a, kind of a form of crazy worship maybe. But it's a, it's, a, it's a form of giving my affection to something. We were all created to worship. Solomon had a worship problem. The reason the people were told not to intermarry wasn't a race issue, but a worship issue. Because this is what is said to him. They will lead your heart away from the Lord. Solomon began to want to please them instead of God. I mean, he, he had the, this ultimate worship service to the Lord. He's offering sacrifices, which was the Old Testament way of you know, of giving value to the Lord is you, you, you would offer sacrifices. And it was a huge sacrifice that he gave to the Lord. The Lord's presence was there. And what happened is these, the, the women in his life, they began to turn his way from the Lord and he wanted to please them instead of God. How bad was it? We're, we're, we're given this indication that he said he even began to worship the detestable gods of Chemosh and Molech. If you're not familiar with these... They would worship these gods by sacrificing children to them. They would throw live children in the fire to try to appease these gods of Molech and Chemosh. Where do you have to be where you are honoring and you want to please the Lord and you're saying, God, give me wisdom. I love you. I want to show my love for you. Give me wisdom to somewhere down the road where I am endorsing throwing live babies into the fire to appease this fake God. What has happened? What happened to Solomon? How does he go from here to there? It's about worship. 
You know, worship is about sacrifice and surrender. Worship is not about a Sunday morning song service. That is an expression of worship. That's not worship itself. Worship is in our heart. It is about sacrifice and surrender. Paul tells us that in Romans. He says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable act of what? Worship. Now, he's not saying literally go throw yourself into a fire or, he's not saying that, but he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice. That you, it's about surrender and it's about sacrifice. That's why becoming a Christian, walking with Christ is about surrender. It's about saying you are in charge and I am not. It's about lordship. It's saying I sacrifice, I surrender my own will for your will to be done in my life. You live in my life in and through me. I walk with you and I give you control. It's about sacrifice and surrender. It's always been. That's why they would sacrifice animals. That was the Old Testament way to sacrifice and bring an offering that was a part of their worship. Ultimately, Jesus became the Lamb of God, the once and for all sacrifice, so we didn't have to, we're not under that law anymore. He became our living sacrifice. He died for us in an ultimate act of worship to his Father. He's saying, Father, I give my life for them to worship you. And then the invitation for us is to live a life of worship, which means Jesus, I receive what you did for me out of love. Now I sacrifice and I surrender my life back to you. It's this exchange. It's about worship. It's about what we give our lives to. That which you give your life to, your time, your attention, your money, your affections, your heart, that is what you worship. That what you turn your heart to. Remember that was what happened to Solomon. It says they turned your hearts away from God. And that what you turn your heart to is become what you worship. And then whatever you worship has lordship, which means control. That which you give your time, your affection, your, that which you give yourself to, that becomes your master. It becomes your God. And so Solomon began to misplace his time, his attention, and his affection by little compromises. He didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll worship Molech and Chemosh today. It was little compromises. It was a path of compromise that ultimately led him there. And that's why we must have to guard our hearts to what the Lord is saying to us. It started by one step toward compromise, then, then another, and then another and then he's at some point so far down the path he can't even discern anymore. Where now he is endorsing and watching live children being thrown into a fire. And there's something, you'd think that something would pierce his heart saying, this is not right. But as humans, we are so easily swayed, we can walk in darkness so quickly. And that's why we must, a part of worship is humility that, thinking that we could never fall, thinking that we could never do that. I would never, ever do that. And I'm, I think that I'm awesome. And be careful. You can trip and fall so quickly. And that's why we must walk in humility with the Lord. And through his life, we're given many warnings about a life that can get out of control. 
it's a life that we see the end result, the end fruit of this life is a life lived for oneself. And so I said that the book of Ecclesiastes is some, somewhat of his journal. It's a study of a man that tries everything worldly that a human being can do to try to find happiness and contentment. His story, the book of Ecclesiastes, the story of Solomon, speaks so much to us now. The Word of God is alive. And the things that he did, you will see in our culture. People trying to appease and find contentment in their hearts. And when we look at Solomon, you will see that he tries everything that culture clamors toward to find contentment and find peace. And so he withholds nothing from himself. And you know what he concludes in it? That, That word in Ecclesiastes? The King James says vanity or meaningless. Because again, we get the book of Ecclesiastes and when he starts telling us about the things that he's done, he has began his walk away from the Lord. And so he's stepping out and he steps more and more into worldliness and a worldly mindset of trying to find happiness, to try to find contentment. And then over and over, he tries these things, and he tries these things, and he withholds nothing from himself, and he says it's meaningless, it's vanity. It's just blowing in the wind. There's, there's, there, there's no real contentment to it. Shows us torment of a life that's lived away from God. And it reveals what happens when we put other things and we put people in God's place in our lives because that, again, is what worship is, is when we're, we take a person, we take a thing, we take that thing we have to have and we put it on the throne of our lives instead of God. So I want to take a look at Solomon's problems and our problems. And if you did an in-depth reading in Ecclesiastes, you'll see this. Solomon's problems and our, what do we worship? First, money. Solomon would sometimes spend more money in a night than all of the money that is combined in this room. Maybe all of the money in Montevideo put together right now. Solomon spent money and he had all the money. Money was not a problem for Solomon. He stored up the equivalent of billions upon billions of dollars. In his day, silver, it says, was commonplace and really worth not much. To give you an idea of, of the wealth. And so he had, uh, and so he withheld, he stored up money. Maybe money, maybe if I have enough money, I will have contentment, I will have peace, and I will have that thing I'm longing for. Ultimately, he had what he was longing for, and it was the right response to the Lord, and he had a worshipful, loving relationship with God. When you're veering off, all of a sudden, I got to try to find something that tries to recreate this, and ultimately, God is saying, none of it will satisfy you except me. So money becomes his God. And he's got more money than any of us could ever imagine. Isn't it amazing, you know, and it was just recently where the Powerball went up to, you know, like astronomical, and people are always watching it. It's on the newspaper, it's on the news, and who's going to be the Powerball winner, and who's going to be a, you know, instant millionaire. 
there was a, I don't know if it was, I guess it was a program on TV, and they were, they were looking back at past lottery winners. You know what, what the majority of them said? They wish they wouldn't have won it. Because it, it just, it, it was empty. And, you know, then you, after a while you buy everything and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have these family or friendships that are strained and people, it, it, it just, it, it just is icky. I mean, it, it just represents so many bad things. And a lot of them say, I wish I would have never won this because it's brought so much frustration and pain. In our culture, just, you know, like Solomon, we have a fixation with money. If we had just, if we had this amount, then we fill in the blank. Then, you know, I, I could get this, I could buy that, we could do this, we could, if we just had, I've been there, I'm guilty. I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching myself. If we just had this, if we had enough money, and we get so fixated on money. Now, money isn't wrong. It's not. I mean, we, we live on it, we, 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 can, we can buy pleasurable things with it if we want to. So money itself is not wrong. The Bible says the love of money is the root of evil. Some people misquote that and they say money is the root of evil. It's not what it says, it says the love of money. It's when money becomes your God. It becomes when you are so fixated on it and your affection thinks about it all the time, how to get more, if we could just do this, and it takes lordship control of your life. And now I can't really, well, you know, because money is controlling me, I can't, like, if God has want me to do this, or he, maybe he wants me to give to a ministry or give to the poor, I can't do this because I'm trying to guard this, and then it becomes a lordship and control over your, over your life. And so we can look at Solomon's life and say money was not an issue. He had more money than any of us could even imagine. The lottery was nothing to him. The Powerball, he would have... If he would have won this Powerball, he would have said, you know, that, that would have been like us finding 50 cents in our pocket. That's how much money he had. Yet, what does he say? With all this money, meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Second thing we see is power and influence. Solomon had more power and influence than anyone on the earth at the time. And yet, again, it did not bring him the contentment that he was looking for. You know, I think the great frustration in our culture now, especially in the United States, is the political structure. It's, it, and, and we all see it. Everybody sees it. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. It's this thirst for power. You know, most of the time now, they're just trying to win an election to get power. Both sides. Sorry to rain on your parade, but they're both doing it. Because it's power. And then you see in the, in, 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 in the world of, of entertainment, actors, influence, and power, musicians, athletes. Power and influence. We're, we're, we, if I could just have this influence, if I could just have this power. That's why so many people vicariously live their lives through actors, musicians, Athletes, probably not so much politicians. I'm not, nobody's really wanting to be a politician. I mean, I dream to be that. I mean, maybe a few, but, but you have so many kids, you know, and you have these posters, and it's not just kids. And you have, you know, one guy said, you have, you know, you know, have grown men. And Tony Evans, I think, you know, talking about grown men wearing jerseys of another man's name on your back. 
I've done that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's when we vicariously live through that and it becomes this thirst for power and influence, wanting to be known. Or if we could only have what they have. Yet you look at so many of their lives and are they happy? Are they content? You see horrible relational problems. You see drug problems. You see lots and lots of unhappiness. We just see them in glimpses of happiness or in a movie. And then we think that that's somehow their lives and their lives are so empty. It's not wrong to have power and influence, but it's what are you using it for? When it, gets out of in, when it gets outside of influencing people for the kingdom of God and exalting oneself instead of Christ, it's misplaced and it becomes our God. We want that power, we want that influence for ourselves. That's what Saul did, building a monument to himself. That's ultimately what Solomon did. His, begin, his power and influence begin to be about self and it can even happen to us in, 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 in the world of Christianity is when we're drawing people to ourselves instead of Christ because we, we like the feeling that it gives us to that we, that we draw them to us instead of saying, yeah, I will love you and I will walk with you, but ultimately you need Jesus. And so Solomon has this amazing power and influence, worldwide power and influence, and yet, again, what does he call it? It's the word meaningless. You can say it out loud if you want. Next is work. You know, after a while, Solomon's just trying to find something. Well, you know, that, you know, money, I've just got so much money, uh, you know, it's over there and power and influence. And now I'll throw myself into work. And he had all these work projects that he did. You know, surely that will give me the satisfaction that I'm looking for. He designed and he built and he worked on way more than any of us could ever dream of doing. At the end of it, what does he see? Meaningless, like blowing in the wind. Where does that fit in us? We should work hard. But here's when it becomes a problem, when it either becomes our place of identity and value you know, I work hard and people appreciate me. Again, that's not wrong. I mean, it's not wrong to desire appreciation and people to recognize a job well done. But when that becomes your fulfillment and then it drives you into working harder and harder and you become a workaholic instead of having your identity in Jesus, it will get meaningless very quickly. And a lot of people, they find that, that little niche and this is where I get value And then we, we lose our identity in who we are in Christ. Again, I'm, I, by the grace of God, you should work hard. You should never be lazy. You should work hard and whatever God sets before you, you should do it with all your might to the glory of God and not let it dictate you. Also work when it becomes a problem is when it becomes an escape. I, I throw myself into projects, I throw myself into work so that I don't have to deal with other things that are going on in my life. Maybe things at home, maybe relational things. And I, so I throw myself into work to try to push that away. Because those problems don't just go away and we can't just 
bury our head in the sand in work and, and think that th- those problems are just going to disappear. They're going to be there. And then what happens is people just work more and they work more and they work more. And it becomes the dictator, the Lord in your life. Solomon threw himself into work and he tried to get satisfaction from that. And it ends up saying it's meaningless. Entertainment. Isn't that something that our culture runs to? Not just our culture, me. I can talk honestly here. Did you know Solomon was known to throw parties for more than 50,000 people in a night? That's a party. He didn't hire bands, he bought bands. I mean, that's what he did. He, he had musicians that he bought I'll just bring you in. He didn't just hire them for a night. You guys will do a little thing and then you can go. No, he bought them to have at his disposal at any time. And so he would throw these massive feasts that would feed. I mean, the money that would go into the food and this, these parties was unbelievable. It was extravagant. And ultimately, he... He's trying to find, again, this contentment, the value and joy. Maybe even when I invite all these people to this party, they'll love me and they'll think something of me. And entertainment becomes this place that I'm trying to find contentment. Now, entertainment is great. I'm not saying that you should forsake entertainment. But again, be careful that it doesn't become your God, your place of affection, the place that you run to, what you live for. Think about And again, maybe an obsession with actors, movies, athletes. What are they doing? What did Justin Bieber eat for breakfast this morning? There's articles about that. The 10 things that Justin Bieber loves to eat. You know why it's in there? People are reading it. I don't care what Justin Bieber eats for breakfast. I I I pray for his soul, but I don't care what he eats for breakfast. I can tell you that. And we're so consumed with what Miley is doing and what our sports are doing and and we, we track along and we're just following it so closely. And again, I'm not saying entertainment, some entertainment's bad, stay away from it. You know what I mean. It's not bad in and of itself. We've just got to be careful that it doesn't become this consumption in our lives. So after Solomon, he buys bands and he has all this stuff. And what does he call it? Meaningless. I mean, he does it more than we would ever do it. He, he, he serves as a reminder. He's telling us through this story, hey, I've done that. It's meaningless. He's screaming at us saying, don't do it. I mean, Because his conclusion is, I, I've done it way more than you would ever thinking about doing it. Don't do it. Next thing is hobbies. Solomon was a master horticulturalist. He was into plants and all kinds of different things, but he didn't just grow gardens. He built forests. Some of you guys that like to garden, can you imagine just having an unlimited, like you have the state of Minnesota as your garden? I mean, that's kind of to put it on that kind of plane that we're talking about. He had unlimited area, and he could get into the hobby of farming and growing plants that he loved, and he was very into them and what the smells. And 
When you read Song of Solomon, that's why you, you, you will see his love for horticulture. And he was very into these plants, and, and so he threw his life into this. And so he throws his heart into this hobby, trying again, and he, and he, goes, he goes bigger. Solomon's, Solomon, you know what his theme was? Go big or go home. That, Solomon, I think, created that. Because he, he went big on everything he did. And so he throws himself into this hobby, and he's got all this stuff that he can imagine. I mean, it's basically, you know, he, he withholds nothing of, from himself. And then he steps back and he looks, and you know what he says? It's meaningless. It's like blowing in the wind. Didn't bring me what I was looking for. Let me clarify. It's not wrong to have hobbies and interests, likes, gardening, music, sports. But again, where it becomes is when it becomes a worship issue. It becomes the value where we sink our life and where we're finding our identity, where we're finding value, when we are escaping from other parts of life, when it becomes Lord over us and it controls us. It's, it's, to, it's given to us, hobbies, those likes, and God puts those likes in us, but it is supposed to be enjoyed for his glory and not worshipped. Solomon did have a problem in this area. And that text that I read earlier gives us an indication that he had a problem in this area. He had 1,000 women at his beckoning. That's a lot of drama. And ladies, that's not an attack on ladies. If it was a woman with 1,000 men, that'd be a lot of drama too. But this is a, this is a lot and you interesting that, you know, and I always looked at this, and I'm like, why is it that, you know, it's like 700 wives, 300 concubines? There was a little kid. This is a funny story. Maybe you read this one time. I just paused. This is very holy and very godly. It'll make you laugh. But a little boy in Sunday school comes running home, and he goes, you know, Mom, I, I, he's just disturbed by something. And she's like, he said, we learned about Solomon. He had 700 wives, and, and, and his mom's thinking, I'm going to have to explain this. And, and he was moving. That he said, but I don't understand why he had 300 porcupines. <laughs> so he was good with the 700 wives. It was those 300 porcupines that he was worried about. But it's interesting that his 700 wives, 300 concubine, at first wives. So he's just marrying. He's looking for that one that would bring him contentment, maybe meaning, maybe satisfaction. That and then. You don't bring it to me. It's meaningless. And then I go on to number two, and then three, and then it's meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Can you imagine those women? I mean, he's basically concluding, I married you, I thought you were, and you're meaningless to me because I'm looking, I'm searching for something. So he's going through wives like water because they couldn't give him what he was so desperately in need of. He was looking for God. And so after a while, it, you know, the wives, it's just, and then now 300 concubines, that's a nice word for saying a sexual partner. I'm not, my intention not to be crass or graphic here, but this is the Bible. This is a broken, fallible man who was walking with God, and then he went his own way. 
And so what do we see? What is, what is he screaming at us from this? He, he holds nothing from himself in the area of sex and relationships with women. And our culture so inundated with that, uh, pornography is off the charts. And so you have a lot of men, there's some women, that it's a higher percentage of men that are in pornography. They're looking for something in the, world, in the world of sexuality, you have sometimes, you know, a lot of women, some men do this, but they read novels and they, you know, these, these romance novels that, that, that are graphic and sexual in nature because they're looking for something, they're looking for fulfillment, they're looking for contentment. And Solomon screams from the past and says, I did it all. I withheld nothing from myself in that area. And you know what my conclusion is and what he's screaming to us? Meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. And in that area is heartbreak and emptiness like you've never imagined. So what do we learn from this part of his life? Human relationships, whether emotional or sexual, will never fill the longing and the emptiness of our hearts. It won't do it. There's no magic relationship or a sexual experience that will bring the contentment that we desperately crave. In fact, when you get into that world and you're trying to find contentment and you're trying to find satisfaction there, what you get is shame, you get guilt, you get regret, you get confusion. And so many people have a story to tell that will testify to that. And Again, relationships and sexuality, those are not wrong, but God gives them as a gift to humanity and he says, here's a gift now take care of the gift. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to do this. If you're wanting that person to be God in your life, you're going to be very disillusioned and you're going to be very hurt. You're not going to find, you're only going to find contentment in me. Enjoy this gift that I've given you. Enjoy it the way I've said it. Enjoy it the way I have, you know, from the very beginning I set this thing up and I put guidelines. Enjoy it in that way. But don't let it be God in your life. Don't let it take that place. I mean, some people get, even get married for the wrong reason. They just, I don't want to be lonely. Well, that's no reason to be married. Be married because God wants you to be, and then find that partner that's going to be a, compatible with you under God, in Christ, doing it God's way. But we can put all kinds of relationships, not just the area of a spouse or the opposite sex, but our children can take the place of God in our lives and relationships can do that. But Solomon's tragic life should point us to Jesus who loves us so deeply. It should point us to the gospel and our need for Jesus, that he died for us to know us in relationship. And that he set it up that he doesn't want us to be content and fulfilled without him. He set it up. When you're miserable without Jesus, that's good. I'm not saying that everybody without Jesus is miserable. But I hope you are. And that's what this story points. Solomon withholds nothing from himself. And he, and he concludes it's meaningless. And it's like chasing the wind. And only God can bring you into that place of fulfillment and peace.
He doesn't want us to be happy without him. He set it up that a life surrendered to him is the most rewarding and the most fulfilling life. A life lived in Christ is meaningful. And his life story also points us to the importance of finishing well. It's great to start. It's great to begin. And we have, sometimes we just, we can remember that day where God kind of called us out. Or maybe it was a season and we took that step towards Jesus. And maybe it was emotional. Maybe it wasn't. But, you know, we all have those different stories. But God wants us to finish well. He wants us to finish with him. And here's a little way from Scripture it's a big way, actually, to finishing strong. Hebrews 12 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the key. The pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Isn't he kind of like almost painting Solomon's picture here? Because you're going to be times you're going to get weary in the journey. You're going to get weary in, 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 in the walk with Jesus. But don't lose heart. Look at Jesus and what he endured. He endured that for you. It even says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We are the joy that's set before him. And we fix our eyes on him, persevering, running with perseverance. And so we look at Solomon's life, and what we say is, don't lose heart. Walk in honor. Walk in the love. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Live for him instead of the things of this world. Watch out what becomes God, what becomes Lord in your life. If you've seen areas where you've compromised, if you see areas where you run to those things, you know what? Here's the joy. Repent and turn to God. And he opens his arm and he receives you back again and again. But let it speak to your heart. And as we look in those areas, as I'm going through this list preparing, this sermon was very convicting to me. God, I have done this. I have put this before you. I have run to this instead of dealing with issues. And these things have become God in my life at times. But we don't have a God who is a big dictator. He's a loving father that when we say, God, please forgive me. I am so sorry. He says, I forgive you and I love you. He embraces us and he walks with us. And so ask yourself, has that thing in my life become worship? Has it taken my affections? Has money become Something you're consumed with. Work, hobbies, entertainment, relationships, power, influence. You know, any of those areas, just ask the Lord. And you know what? He lovingly shows us, and then we get right with him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's called relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you today, and we thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy again. And Lord, in one sense, thank you for showing us Solomon's life. In the other sense, Lord, it is heartbreaking to read because he was a real man that lived. He was a real man that started really well and he loved you and worshipped you and extravagantly worshipped you, poured out much toward you. 
But Lord, we also see that his affection began to be veered in a different direction. We see, Lord, compromise, and then we see him not finishing well at all. We see him going to an extreme that is very heartbreaking. But God, I believe that you've shown us a story. You give us that story, Lord, to serve as a reminder, not only of just the, uh, the fearful reminder of what could be, but also the loving reminder that you want best for us. That you set this life up that we would enjoy life and we enjoy the things of this life, relationships and hobbies and different things that you've given us and work and, and we can enjoy and we can put ourselves into that. But Lord, ultimately it's to bring you glory and to, to lift up your name and that Lord, we would not be lorded over by those things. I pray we would guard our hearts, Lord, and ultimately that we would finish well. I pray God that for every person here, that we would run well, we would finish well. God, in those times where it gets difficult, Lord, we would not lose heart. But we would fix our eyes on Jesus every single day. Lord, those areas that you're showing us, those areas of compromise, those, Lord, those areas where we've had that, those things as Lord of our lives, forgive us. Forgive us. Set us free. Help us to walk with you again every day. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope you have a